0: This episode on codependency is slated to come out on Valentine's Day. Is that on on theme or,
1: or maybe overplayed? I was delighted to hear that you're doing a Valentine's Day episode on codependency. I feel like we all have a duty at this moment to not be spinning the same yarns about love. I also think codependency is having a moment on TikTok and elsewhere, and it's a great time to talk about actually what it is.
0: This is Unladylike, I'm Kristen, and it's true, like a lot of therapy speak these days, codependency is having a moment on TikTok.
1: Here is a
0: hack to not live codependently, to not be codependent. Codependency, it is this epidemic that's sort of everywhere, but hard to identify. Codependency really is just simply this. If you're good, I'm good. If you're not
1: good, i'm not good
0: that's it that's it that's it okay well i guess that's the end of the episode yeah right on ladies that is not it okay the thing about codependency i've learned is that it's both very complex and pretty controversial some folks refer to it as love addiction or toxic monogamy Codependency critics, meanwhile, call it a toxic myth. They say, oh, this was just invented by AA to propagate 12-step recovery programs and sell self-help books like the classic Codependency No More. But that doesn't make the underlying behaviors and patterns codependency describes any less real. In the 2018 study titled The Lived Experiences of Codependency, Lead researcher Dr. Ingrid Bacon identified three hallmarks of self-identified codependence. A lack of clear sense of self, an enduring pattern of extreme emotional, relational, and occupational imbalance, and control issues stemming from childhood trauma, which, to be fair, probably doesn't make for a great TikTok, okay? Codependency also is not a formalized diagnosis listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, and despite decades of research, there is no universally accepted definition of what exactly codependency is. What we do know is that codependency is a self-help staple, which in and of itself is stigmatized. It also comes with a lot of gender baggage that today's guest has spent mm, quite a bit of time unpacking.
1: My name is Nina Renata-Aaron. I'm a writer and editor. I'm the author of a memoir and cultural history of codependency called Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, a memoir of women, addiction, and love. Now, to be clear, Neither I nor Nina are therapists, and
0: if there are psychologists or addiction recovery specialists who are listening to this and are like, hey, you didn't talk about this or you misinterpreted that, please, I am all ears. If you want to weigh in, send your emails and voice memos to hello at unladylike.co. And please know that I am doing my best to be as sensitive as possible especially since this conversation delves into the realm of addiction. But for our unladylike purposes today, we're focusing in on the culturally fraught relationship between codependency, women, and feminism. In other words, you know, I'm I'm trying to stay in my lane, (laughs) y'all.
1: You know, it was really kind of denigrated for a long time because it is this very feminized, gendered set of behaviors. And so I've been kind of excited to see that right now on social media, it's speaking to people as a concept. I personally feel that codependency is kind of due for an upgrade. A lot of the tools were designed to keep women in heterosexual marriages. <laughs> but, <laughs> but so I think there's room for us to debate the merits of using that blanket term. but for me, it was life-saving as a as a framework for understanding my own behaviors. And I've seen it in a lot of places. I think there's just an explosion of kind of pop psychology and self-help on social media. And some of that is fraught because it's not underpinned by like great expertise, but it is motivated by people's desire to feel better and live better. And I think that's important.
0: So how did you first hear about codependency, and what did you think it was?
1: I first heard about it when I was a teenager, and I write a lot about this in my book, but my sister developed a heroin addiction when I was like a young teenager, and it had a profound effect on my family. And it was like about a decade of really harrowing intense addiction and all of the fallout that comes from that. Al-Anon was recommended to me by a high school guidance counselor at the time because I was starting to, like, you know, not do well at school, and I was very distracted and had a lot of responsibility and emotional responsibility at home. So I tried Al-Anon, and my parents tried Al-Anon. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's the kind of sister program of Alcoholics Anonymous for friends and family of alcoholics and addicts. That was when I first heard the term and I kind of understood it to be the province of old ladies. Like I went to a meeting in the nineties and it was a lot of older women who had alcoholic husbands and who seemed to have figured out how to live with that. And it felt very Christian to me. I was Hmm. raised Jewish and it was my first time like in a church, you know, I went to a church (laughs) and a lot of the values where it felt very Protestant, there was a kind of rigidity to it. And it was super interesting, but I just understood it as like, getting your own act together. And I didn't really understand it in a more fine grained way until much later, it kind of freaked me out. Well, Nina, I have to tell you, I had
0: codependency so wrong. I I always thought that codependency was like the inverse of independence, right? And, you know, I am a feminist. I value my autonomy, my independence. And I thought that basically disqualified me, you know, from from codependency or codependent behaviors. Do you think that that's, that's a common misunderstanding?
1: Definitely. I think it's actually quite complicated, codependency. And I think people use the word as a kind of shorthand and I don't always even understand what people mean when they say it because I don't think they necessarily know what it is it's kind of like when someone just casually is like you know I'm really OCD about my kitchen or something and someone with OCD might be like you know (laughs) it's as someone who knows I have this thing codependency and has like had to unfortunately, spend a lot of time understanding (laughs) exactly what it is. I'm often like, let's not just call anything codependency. And I think people do see it as like an excess of dependency, which it is. But it's also, you know, when you're in that kind of disordered relationship to someone, and you do have an excessive focus on someone else, you know, there is like too much dependency on that person. But On the flip side, like there's also a perverse kind of power and control that comes from managing a relationship to somebody else, managing someone else's life. And in the case of the relationship, romantic relationship, I primarily write about in my book, you know, I was really like a gatekeeper. I was running his life for a long time and keeping my own life really separate. So I was maintaining that independence, and that seems kind of paradoxical, but that was because I did all the work, I paid all the bills, I gave him the money he needed for drugs every day, and I made all the decisions. And there's also a real kind of self-abnegation and denial of self, because even though you keep yourself separate, it doesn't mean that you're in really deep touch with what you want or need. So a lot of what we do in codependency recovery is learn how to identify a gut feeling. When someone's like, what's your gut telling you? And when you've grown up in the dysfunction of addiction, you're like, I don't have a gut. I don't know. I don't even know what that means. So that's been a huge part of my recovery is like learning to check in with myself and figure out whether I have a feeling and what it is and how to name it and say what I need. Could you talk a little bit more about
0: that, that gut feeling disconnect in those kind of dysfunctional family systems growing up around addiction,
1: why that disconnect happens? My experience was pretty typical, where my sister developed this addiction, which was frankly terrifying and very unprecedented in my middle-class Jewish household. My dad was a bit emotionally checked out about it, and my mom turned to me, the middle child. I became a kind of spouse. I went to check my sister into rehab with her instead of my dad. I was her point person, and I was the person who was close to my sister who could be told to like go through my sister's bag or see if my sister was high at school or, you know, do all this detective work. I resented that. I felt like I couldn't speak up about the fact that I resented that. But I was also really enlivened by that. That gave me like a sense of purpose, a sense of power. And it made me feel like that was my ticket to the most purest form of love from my mother. And when you are continually called upon to play that role, it becomes very hard to say like, hey, today, I know you're really worried about this, but I need help with homework or something. I think we just get farther and farther away from identifying our own needs because the the not to make everything a drug metaphor, but the purest hit of purpose (laughs) and love comes from those other behaviors being handling a crisis, you know, dealing with the high stakes stuff of addiction.
0: Could you share a little bit about sort of where you were at when the codependency
1: light bulb really went off for you? I chose a wildly unstable relationship with a person who was in the throes of extreme addiction to heroin and crack and other things. And I did that when I was married. I was a young mother. And this ex-boyfriend with whom I'd been madly in love as a teenager came back into my life. And I left my more stable, not totally stable life to, to be with him. So some part of me, I think, knew that like some little alarm bell was going off when I made that really pretty inadvisable decision. But It took me years in that relationship to really be brought to my knees. You're not necessarily going to lose your job because you're so codependent. You're not going to lose your house. Like probably you're carrying all the responsibility for the household. What happens is you reach an emotional bottom that is, you know, in my case, suicidal depression and sense of chaos things were profoundly chaotic emotionally psychologically mentally and i was angry and resentful and had no outlets for that and i knew that i would continue to express that anger through self defeating and self-harming behaviors. I was never going to say to my partner, like, here's exactly what I need, and if you can't do it, this relationship is over today. You know, I was just going to continue down my own path of self-destructive drinking or cheating or whatever. So I had to pull myself back from the edge. It's a kind of cliche of AA and Al-Anon that you, like, come in crawling. And for me, that was paradoxically not thinking I'm going to die. It was thinking I'm going to live. I'm going to be a grandma and be doing this kind of you know, feeling like this, you know, that was horrifying.
0: Why use the language and framework of addiction in a relationship
1: setting? That's a really good question. I, I think it's the framework we have and I think that it will continue to evolve and my aim in writing this book was not just situating my experience and contextualizing my experience in like a longer women's history which was really interesting and shed a lot of light on my enabled me to not just be looking at my individual pathology but understanding these behaviors as a very gendered response to very unequal power relations over time. But I also think that I wanted to pressure test codependency. Like it's a great tool. The codependent dynamic that one experiences in a romantic relationship it is quite similar to addiction. Like you know, you do develop a relationship to that person. And that person often is acting in ways that are abusive and unreliable and unpredictable. But, you know, if my ex-boyfriend, you know, didn't text me back or something, I would be in a state that's not unlike drug withdrawal. Like, totally fixated, obsessed, and physically having physical symptoms of, and I see people in those relationships, you you know, people in those relationships who are acting like they're fine, but that tether to that, you know, it's not a substance in this case, it's a person, but it does look a lot like drug addiction. So part of me says from personal experience, it is the right analogy. And also we have to keep updating these tools, because even our way of thinking about addiction and alcoholism has changed profoundly and must continue to change. And when I think about even the tone I take when I talk about these things, you know, I'm like nearing middle age and that shit has played out. I hear other people talking (sighs) who've grown up with more of a harm reduction sensibility and I hear myself sounding like a product of the 80s and 90s, which I am. And that was a time of real criminalization, marginalization, stigmatization of drug users and shame. Like it's all shrouded in shame. You know, I defer to a younger generation <laughs> on some of these things. And I hope to continue to evolve my own thinking. But but I do, I would like defend the addiction analogy because I do think that's how you end up acting and it and you debase yourself.
0: So Let's get into the gendering of it all and the history that you uncovered. I've been so excited to talk to you about this. Is codependency a feminine condition?
1: Great question. Complicated question. (laughs) I I would argue yes. And part of why I wanted to write about it was because I had never read about it. And then I got really like heavy into the historical research. And codependency, as we understand it, evolved largely out of the temperance movement in the 19th century, which evolved largely out of the Second Great Awakening, the Protestant revival toward the beginning of the 19th century. I did a lot of reading of temperance women's oratory, which was fiery and like extremely badass. I thought these women were kind of prim Christians who wanted to ruin everybody's party and didn't want anyone to drink (laughs) alcohol, but those women, men were drinking a colossal amount of alcohol throughout the 19th century in America, and women had no political or economic power. No, you couldn't divorce. You couldn't have your own job and support your kids. So the temperance movement was really like this sort of gathering of energies to figure out how to deal with men's drinking, and the and the power that women did have was the power of what I read someone called moral suasion, the power the the moral high ground, and they kind of cultivated a whole rhetoric of you know, shaming alcoholic men, but also speaking really frankly about their own suffering. And they became like a, a political force that, that and that fed prohibition, which was like, you know, arguably a totally failed experiment. But But it's all super interesting. And when I read about the temperance and really read like in their own voices, how these women were talking, I was kind of, my mind was blown. I was like, oh, like this, these are like historically conditioned behaviors, like codependency could be easily thought of as just women being controlling or enabling or manipulating or something. But I was thinking they had to do that. They had to, they had to be a little wily because they had to live with this really unequal situation. And they ultimately petitioned for, you know, they they gained enough political power to change some of these laws around, you know, grounds for filing for divorce, etc. But I, I came to sort of understand that That was the groundwork, and it was totally gendered because it was not socially acceptable for women to drink at the time. There were not just like, it wasn't half women in the saloons, you know. (laughs) It was a men's problem, and women were responding to it. And that response was conditioned by gendered constraints of all kinds. And then the founding of Al-Anon followed the founding of AA in the 30s, And Al-Anon wasn't founded until 1951, but the very kind of medical understanding of alcoholism, it was like a dyad. There was the alcoholic and what was called the co-alcoholic and then became the codependent. And so it was understood to be not just an individual disease, but like a married couple's disease or like a mother and son, you know, it's like for every alcoholic there's some lady like crying about how he spent all the money or drank up all the you know whatever, and so I think it's kind of baked in to the way this term was defined and has developed over the years, and I think that's probably starting to change. Going back to to our
0: timeline, you know, codependency didn't go mainstream until the mid '80s when. I mean it just became this self-help blockbuster. Um so <laughs> which went more viral, codependency in the 80s or gaslighting today?
1: <laughs> That's a great parallel. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, they're very similar. In the 80s, codependency had like a maybe its biggest moment, bigger than today. I think bigger than the TikTok moment.
0: (laughs) I know books. It was actually, if you can believe it, listeners, it was printed books (laughs) that people were reading.
1: Those used to exist. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, I think because it's a women's issue and it's not, I should say, an officially recognized disorder in the DSM or something, it is kind of like a behavioral pattern. But I think it's been really understudied because it's chick stuff. (laughs) And the 80s was the self-help boom. There's a famous book called Women Who Love Too Much, which isn't specifically about codependency. It's kind of about like what we now call relationship addiction or love addiction. And now we also have all the tools of attachment theory that are also related. These are like all in the same neighborhood. But that book, which i I do really recommend, I mean, I, I reread it a couple of times while writing my book, and I was, I did really see myself in that book, it's not a difficult read, it's like a breezy self help book, but, but it's, it's very helpful for anyone who's wondering, whether they are putting too much focus on an external on a man, I mean, on a man.
0: Yeah, there is there is a distinct like heteronormativity to yes. it all as well. And, you know, if you just look at the the titles of some of the those those seminal books that came out in the 80s, because there's also, you know, codependent no more Um I think, like, I I also had this initial reaction to seeing titles like Women Who Love Too Much that feels like, oh, God, like, is this just like a a rom-com trope?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of what I'm saying is, like, none of this has had broken through out of the register of kind of frivolity, like, and and the reason I wanted to write about it and do it in a literary way was to, to take it seriously. I, ne- I have never seen it taken seriously. And in the rooms of Al-Anon and other recovery programs, obviously it's taken seriously as a kind of suffering and a kind of unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship pattern that we're trying to heal from but it's still not taken that seriously and i i kind of wanted to find a way to put it in the realm of real consideration literary and historical and it's it's much more interesting than we've given it space to be
0: what did you make of the feminist backlash to what i'll call big codependency like the codependency boom in the 80s and 90s
1: i think that was a reaction toward a kind of characterization of a broad swath of the world's women as submissive helpless like unable to do anything but live in the shadow of a big powerful scary man and those people are completely right that that's not a way that we want to characterize women of the world. That said, I think it also kind of deepened the shame of women. Like, I, you know, I'm somebody who was raised by a brilliant feminist mother, and I've considered myself a feminist since I was like four years old or something. <laughs> I... have you know, I studied gender studies. I've spent my life really committed. I was a riot girl. I've been done activism. I'm like into it. And so I felt a lot of shame just seeing these patterns in my own life because they were at odds with another stereotype about feminists and that they have to be strong and independent and that they don't need men and that, you know, and So all of these depictions are reductive and they don't serve us. It's always more complicated, but I would say I totally understand why after fighting so hard for the gains that feminists won through the 60s, 70s, 80s, to suddenly have this blockbuster bestseller about women being like enthralled to shitty guys and that being like our essential nature and what we can do to overcome this like kind of complex or something i mean i'm totally with those feminists who are like what (laughs) (laughs) but i also think we have to hold space for this really painful complicated experience of codependency or whatever you want to call it
0: The self-care book that changed my life. Codependent no more. So okay. I have a I have a, a big thought here, Nina. Um, you know, culturally we we are in a time that feels very familiar to that <laughs> that late 80s moment. You know, we we're in a conservative backlash, full tilt, and Am I just hearing things or
1: is there kind of an echo here? There's definitely an echo. I mean, I think this was another reason why I wanted to kind of interrogate codependency because it came out of, it came out of these Christian movements and their primary aim was to keep intact the heterosexual nuclear family. So... It's easy to think that the overarching message in codependency recovery is like, take back your own life, whatever that may mean. But really, like the book that was written in 1950 something, you know, the aim of it was stay with your alcoholic husband. It's like, you need to figure out how to sort yourself out so that you can stay and raise your children and be a good mother and there are some passages I quote in my book that were particularly amusing to me, where it was like the advice was to knead your anger into the bread dough, to garden, like, garden your cares away. <laughs> like, like, take the anguish of this experience and make it productive. And I know productivity and, culture. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Use it to, like, make your home more beautiful or whatever. And, to me, like one big correction that is needed is to bust out of that. And, you know, when we take our lives back and become like the main character of our lives again, when we recover from codependency, like, then we should use that freedom to do whatever serves us, whatever we want. And, and I think that's why I really understand a feminist backlash to it, because it was like, you know, cooked up in a particular kitchen to get women to stay in that kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) And that's very similar to a a conservative strain. Like we're we're almost back to the, you know, moral majority kind of vibe of the eighties.
0: How do you contextualize codependency also within a, a more gender and sexuality inclusive, framework because it was baked right into this very like cis normative framework. And also there is so much it it describes very gendered behavior and these very gendered roles that women are often raised to to play out no matter what, not to mention just like, oh my God, like all of the, we could have a whole other conversation about how all of our like pop cultural portrayals of love just like feed right into this. So is it only women then, cisgender women who can be codependent? I'll put it that
1: way. I would say no, not at all. And I live in the Bay Area and I am part of a pretty thriving recovery community that is probably half queer. I think that I have these conversations a lot with people and it's similar in AA or other 12-step recovery contexts because the tools we have are old. And the, I mean, I'm not a religious person at all but it is akin to the way people read the Bible and have to, find ways to read themselves into it, even though it was written so long ago and it was not written with them in mind. And I think that, you know, the kind of foundational texts of Al-Anon and AA, it's a big part of recovery now to talk through the ways that we don't feel our experiences reflected there and, and you know, ways that these, this framework fits and also ways that it feels totally anachronistic or Wrong, so that's a very live conversation. But I think in terms of the relationship patterns, they can happen in any relationship, certainly, because I think they are gendered in a historical sense. And I also think they have to do with power and they have to do with dysfunction. And you know, anyone can be the addict in this scenario and anyone can be the codependent. I mean, I think literally everything is mediated by gendered thinking and expectations, but, but no, I mean, I've seen these patterns in every single conceivable kind of relationship.
0: (laughs) Well, how would you describe your relationship to codependency
1: today? Good question. I... I think that understanding my own pain through the lens of codependency was profoundly life-changing. It allowed me to understand why I was doing the things I was doing. And I was making some very bad decisions in my life. They were not serving me, and I was in terrible pain. And codependency gave me... A framework for understanding that so i'm very grateful that the concept exists that said my relationship is one of kind of healthy tolerant skepticism like i love codependency and i'm also the first one to be ready to talk about its problems and i'm kind of skeptical of anyone who doesn't feel that way about anything (laughs) so i think it's just How I'm wired. um, I think we should always be thinking critically about these things. So I think understanding codependency may have saved my life. But I also hope that people keep talking about these patterns and behaviors and pushing our understanding of them forward so that we can kind of bust out of the container we were in which was really just about staying married to a guy if there was one myth
0: about codependency that you could bust what would it be
1: if i could bust one myth it would be that the codependent is kind of helpless in the relationship i think that i didn't actually understand my codependency and i wasn't able to get past it until I understood how much power I was drawing from that relationship. And that power is very flimsy because it's not real. You're just like controlling and managing someone else's life. But but I think that people are likely to see codependency as kind of just being subject to someone else's whims. But in fact, we find a lot of purpose and power there. And until we're ready to let that go, like really let go of trying to control Mm -hmm. someone else's or believing that we can control somebody else's life or decisions, we'll never get better.
0: Unladies, do you have a relationship with codependency? Good, bad, indifferent? Let me know. Hello at unladylike.co is the email address. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. And while you're at it, go ahead, follow at unladylikemedia on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And thank you so very much to our guest, Nina Renata Aaron. And be sure to check out her book, Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, A Memoir of Women, Addiction, and Love. You can also find Nina on Instagram and Twitter at Nina Renata Aaron. If you appreciate Unladylike and want to help ensure its podcasting future, hashtag recession, hashtag inflation, please, please, please consider becoming an Unladylike patron. For $5 a month, you get a bonus episode every single week, instant access to the entire bonus archive, and more. Just $5 a month. $5, ladies and gentlemen. Just $5 a month. That's patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Unladylike is a Starburns audio production, written, executive produced, and hosted by me, Kristen Conger. Aristotle Acevedo is our senior producer and engineer. Catherine Caligori is our associate producer. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? The
1: most unladylike thing about me... Is probably that I have the sense of humor of like a twelve-year-old boy, so I I find gross jokes and like boner humor really (laughs) delightful. And to my great shame, that is not particularly ladylike. I mean, who
0: doesn't love a good fart joke? (laughs) Come
1: on. A podcast network.